You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Today we have a special guest, Marcy Edwards of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Uh, she is a senior research engineer at the Institute. Uh, she joined in 2000 and her research focuses on occupant protection in the areas of whiplash and child passenger safety, among others. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. Yeah. So for our, our listeners, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety is that really cool organization where you can see clips on YouTube where they smash cars into walls. Um, that's the simple version. But so real serious question. My car is only a couple of years old, but in like maybe 10 years when it's, you know, it's end of life, I don't want it anymore. Can I come down and drive it into a wall full speed? <laughs> um, you know, we have bought, we've, we have bought older cars. Uh, for that purpose in order to demonstrate the improvements in safety over the years. But generally, no, we don't generally take take people's used cars. Come on. It looks so much fun. It, you know, it is would, fun. I would think that would be a great spectator sport. You could line up stadiums and, you know. Yeah. It would be, be almost like demolition derby. But well, well, way back in the you day. can come and be responsible. <laughs> I, back in the day, I believe in the 1800s, they would do that with trains and hundreds of thousands of people would come into towns in the Midwest to see trains collide like that. And one resulted in a massive, I think, boiler explosion of the steam train that hurt a lot of people. So it's a longstanding tradition, I think, to witness that type of carnage. Yeah, and we have a lot more interest in in visiting than we have capacity for, for sure. It's it's interesting. It's also educational, you know, for people to understand the the types of forces that we're talking about and how quickly an airbag deploys. But yeah, we we have more interest than we actually have capacity for, unfortunately. Yeah. So one area that you focus on that we've talked about a bunch here, and and I know Michael and Fred are really into is uh, rear passenger safety, child impact safety. And there's a, a video I saw on your YouTube channel, we'll throw up a link to it of uh, you were showing what happens when people are the seatbelts on versus not. Uh, because as a lay person, you always figure, okay, I'm in the back seat. If I don't have a seatbelt on, I'm just going to hit the seat in front of me. And that person, the driver probably has a seatbelt on, so they'll be fine. And then you realize, no, you're just this bullet. Right. Yeah. yeah. People don't don't quite understand how much mass that they have and how much force that equates to in a crash and and how you can affect the safety of the other occupants in the vehicle when you when you become the projectile. So it's not just about your own safety, but but making sure that you don't become an impactor for the other people in the vehicle. So what are you guys doing that uh, it seems that really what IIHS does is it really kind of forces the industry to be honest about safety issues that they've been neglecting and whatnot. So particularly in the in the case of, you know, child passenger safety and, and rear seat safety, um, what's kind of the big pushes you guys have been doing for the last, it's really the last 10 years, really, that I've seen more of it. Yeah, we've been working on rear occupant safety um, probably Probably for the last five years, we we started researching um, what the issues were in the rear seat, trying to understand what types of injuries were um, we were seeing in the rear seat, and and what the really difference was between 
front seat safety and rear seat safety. Um, so, you know, back prior, um, you know, to, to 2007, if you looked at field data, the, the rear seat was actually safer vehicles. Um, you know, you, the, the intrusion and a frontal crash didn't get to the rear seat and, um, you know, there was no steering wheel to impact. And so the, the rear seat was actually the safer place to be. But as we've made advances in safety in the front seat, the front seat has now become safer in newer model vehicles. And so what we wanted to do is, is catch the rear seat up with the front. So we've made great gains. Automakers have responded to our tests and have really improved safety for the front seat. And so we wanted to see that in the rear seat as well. And so we started by researching what's, what sort of injuries we saw in the rear seat and um, what sort of problems we needed to address. And then looking at how with our crash tests or by adding a, a different crash test, we could address that. Um, for rear seat occupants. And so that's what we recently put out in uh, late 2022. We implemented our first seat, um, ratings for rear seat occupants in frontal crashes. And I, I was going through those actually today, and it looks like a lot of manufacturers seem to not rate so great in, the, in those rankings, particularly, I think, in the medium and small SUVs. They uh, yeah. A lot of their systems um, don't seem to be performing as well. There seems to be a lot of, I guess, a lot, a big difference between the good performers and the poor performers. Yeah. So the technology that that is in the in the front seat, um, in your seatbelt, in the front seat right now, there are um, two primary. Um, uh, pieces of technology that are that are used to reduce injuries, and the, one is pretensioning, which tightens your your seatbelt early in the crash in order to reduce um, the slack in the belt and re and reduce your um, your velocity with the vehicle. And so, and then the other one is force limiting, which is actually allows your belt to pay out some so that it reduces the forces on the thorax. And so in, in every vehicle um, that you might buy today, those are uh, standard in the front seat, but they're not in the rear seat. And so right now about 50% of the vehicles in the US fleet have uh, pretensioning and force limiting in the rear seat positions. Um, and so that's why you see a big difference in performance it's, um, and it's not just pretensioning and force limiting. Sometimes it's how it's implemented. So, you know, that's one of the things that we really wanted to focus on with this um, rear occupant evaluation is one, making sure that the technologies that we know are beneficial are, are implemented in the rear seat and adapted to the rear seat, but also that they're implemented well. So one of the things that we want to make sure is not happening in the rear seat is the, um, the seat belt, the lap belt sliding up into the abdomen. Um, so, you know, the, seatbelt is supposed to stay on your strong bones and that means the pelvis and then and the shoulder but what we see in the rear seat um, as a problem is this, the lap belt actually sliding up over those bones into your abdomen and causing serious abdominal injuries so that's one of the things that we're trying to prevent in the rear seat and so that takes some intentional design to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, there's, there's no overlap between the testing that you do and the testing that NCAP does, right? But there's also some significant differences. Could you talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, the tests that we do are largely complementary to what 
what NCAP testing does. So um, NCAP testing does a full frontal, um, full width flat wall test, um, whereas we, which, which can be more challenging for restraints um, in terms of acceleration and, and managing that energy. But we um, have complementary tests in that we do offset tests. So um, instead of hitting the entire front width of the vehicle, we have two tests, one that only um, impacts 40% of the width of the vehicle and one that only impacts 25% of the width of the vehicle. And those challenge the vehicle structure in a different way than um, a full frontal test. It, it, focuses the energy on a smaller part of the width of the vehicle. And so the structure has to be able to manage that. And so that's one of the differences between our crash tests. And then with that comes different occupant kinematics. So the dummies move differently when you only impact part of the vehicle rather than the whole front. Um, and so, so it, we, together, um, address a lot of the different types of crashes that we see in the real world. Well, you have different uh, dummy types too, right? Different body types? Yep, we do. Um, so right now for our frontal tests, we are using 50th percentile males in the front seat. But in the rear, we've just, um, when we added the rear occupant, which um, the NCAP test right now does not have a rear occupant in frontal crashes in the rear seat. Um, and we've added a small female to the rear seat. And then um, they they use some different dummies in the front seat. Some in some of their crashes, they use small females. And um, in in the front seat, where we're using a fiftieth male. And then in our side impact crashes, we're using small females in both the front and the rear seat because um, we felt that that was a higher risk scenario for small females than than fiftieth males. Wow, that's fantastic. Are you are you limited in the types of body types that are available or are you limited more by the scope of the tests that you think are reasonable? Um, we are we are pretty limited by the the types of dummies that are available. Um, right now with the only dummy sizes that are available are the fifth percentile female, 50th percentile male, and 95th percentile male. Um, so it it expands the range of of humans um but we have to make choices about which of those can best represent the most occupants being injured in that particular crash so that's why you see that in some in some cases we make the choice to use a 50th percentile male in some cases we make the choice to use a small female because we're trying to address the, um, the occupants that are at most risk in those particular seating positions and crash modes. Do I get to vote? I'd, I'd like to vote for the 95th percentile male, please. Thank you is very that, much. Is that you? Uh, pretty close. Yeah. We actually, in, in all of our tests, we do, we only do research with the 95th percentile male. Um, so I think the 50th male is, is the most popular generally because um, even though it's called a male, it represents both males and females of, of average size. And um, in the rear seat, we chose the small female because a lot of children sit in the rear seat. And, and typically, if, if an occupant is going to sit in the rear seat, it's usually not the 95th male. It's usually one of the smaller occupants in the group. How many times do you crash test the car in a roll? Say, you know, you've got 
some sedan and you want to get some data on backseat passenger stuff. And so you've got, you know, I don't know, a, a Toyota Camry or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you want to see, OK, well, let's see what it does off of, um, uh, you know, side impact and then roll over. I mean, mm-hmm. you're I assume you're using a new car each time. For each test, you're going just, hey, we keep damaging this car more and more. The dummy doesn't have an arm anymore. Like, yeah. Because like, I, I, I imagine just setting up these tests and figuring out, okay, one, this has got to be exp- – I mean, are, do you guys buy the cars or do the OEMs say, give them to us? I can't imagine that they're <laughs> – Yeah, so um, we do a little of both. But, yes, we do – we have to – test each crash mode individually because, you know, although multiple mode crashes do happen in the real world, we, we like to um, keep it simple in our crash lab and um, straightforward. And so we, we keep those tests separate. Um, so we have a different vehicle for each of the crash tests that we have to do. Um, and, and yes, we do purchase them. We try to make a point to purchase them off of dealer lots so that they are exactly what consumers are getting. Um, sometimes automakers can nominate their vehicle. For example, if we don't have it on our test plan to test a vehicle and, and they, um, they want a rating for it, then they can nominate it and they do contribute to the purchase price of the vehicle in that scenario. Do they ever come back and be like, hey, nominate this car? And then you guys test it. And they're like, never mind. No, no. One star. Nope. That was no. Yeah, that has that has <laughs> happened for sure. But unfortunately for them, once they nominate it, then then it gets published. Wow. All right. But so back to, back to the test. So I imagine like if you're focusing on like, you know, whiplash incidents or child safety. So you you're focused on one section. We have somebody else. They're focused on, you know, front passenger uh, impacts. And so they've got a range of data they want to collect. You have your own data. Like, how does how does it what does it take to come up with a test scenario to say, hey, we're going to smash this twenty thousand dollar car and make sure that we have all of the data. And I went for a cheap car because cars now <laughs> ridiculous price. OK, uh, but uh, how do you how do you do that? Because, hey, not only have to do it one time and you can't I can't imagine you can get it wrong. You can't be like, oh, we forgot to snap the seatbelt in. Uh, yeah. That's a bad day at the office. It is a bad day at the office. Yeah, that's a bad day at the office looks different for us than a lot of people. But yeah, we um, we have a lot of procedures in place to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, we use checklists very fastidiously. Um, we... You know, we have experienced mishaps, um, but we try to make sure when they happen that we put things in place to make sure they don't happen again. Um, but, you know, in our research process, we really work together to make sure we can get the most information out of a test as possible. You know, sometimes we have, you know, as many as as three or four dummies in a in a vehicle to get as much information as we can, which challenges is our resources. Um but yeah, we we do try to make sure that if we run a crash test and you know we're testing a thirty thousand dollar car that that it goes as planned. Yeah, and so for each car you choose, uh, are you doing every battery of tests on it? So again, the the Toyota Camry. So you're doing the forty percent offset, twenty five percent. Are you also doing side impact and rollover and? Yeah. So so battery. typically, if we're going to rate a vehicle, um, we do all of those. But we we do have um, some 
some procedures in place that allow automakers to supply us with their own in-house crash test data. So if they've performed well in a crash test before, we, you know, we trust that they um, know what they're doing, then you know, for certain crash modes where where they've performed well in the past, we do allow them to submit their own data for some of those tests. Like, for example, right now we're not doing that for the rear occupant test, the updated moderate 2.0. But um, but for some of the tests that that they've been doing for a while, then then we allow them to do that. So we don't have to test everything um, for every vehicle. Because okay. I'd imagine that would just it would take you more than a year to test every vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, you know, we are in Rutgersville, Virginia, the only crash test facility that tests for IHS. And so we, you know, some, some places have multiple test houses that test for them, but all of our crash tests are done here at this one facility. Well, you've also done some interesting testing. If my memory is correct, Uh, for example, you did some road tests of, self-driving vehicles and you were looking at their responses as you were cresting hill and um i seem to remember that study and it was had some pretty scary results from that yeah so you're you're really pushing the envelope in a lot of the test procedures that you do yeah we're trying to understand these systems um the the automated driving systems we're trying to make sure that um, as they are implemented in vehicles, that they are done safely and in a way that um, doesn't compromise um, vehicle safety and occupant safety. So we do a lot of research on those systems, trying to understand their shortcomings and um, and if there are benefits. Have you ever seen the Zooks vehicle? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot and get you in trouble. But yeah. I have, I have of, not. I, no, uh, I have not. Autonomous self-driving vehicle that as a layperson looking at it going, there's no way that survives a crash test. I don't know what they're doing. Did and you then, see, did you see Anthony? They recently did the, the 301, the FMDS 301 test on it, uh, no. from the rear on a Zooks vehicle and the sled only contacts the Zooks vehicle on the tires you know those big funny tires <laughs> they have, and push it basically pushes the undercarriage under the vehicle and the passengers you know look fairly well protected but you know this is a car that's operating without a uh steering wheel and brakes when it should be so we'll see <laughs> yeah well it was unusual too because it only had what we generally think of as a supplemental restraint system so it's completely reliant on the airbags that came out right. there were no there were no uh, web constraints or strap constraints or seat belts or anything like that in the vehicle. Yeah. So, so oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Oh, no, well, I was going to say. I was going to say. <laughs> we'll get this straight one of these times, Mars. We're still very new to this. Um, do, do you have a wish list of technical enhancements that you'd like to see in test dummies? Because uh, uh, my recollection is that a lot of the instrumentation that you're able to put on test dummies is somewhat dated and limited in scope. Yeah, the test dummies are a challenge. Um, You know, they're an approximation of human response and they're meant to represent a lot of, um, a lot of different humans at once. And yet, you know, what we know about humans is that they're extremely variable. And so um, dummies are a challenge, but we do know that that how they've been used in the past and how we've been using them for the last, um, you know, 
20 years has really made a difference in vehicle safety. So we know even though they, the tools have shortcomings, they have been beneficial in advancing vehicle safety thus far, um, but they do have shortcomings. And, and one of the recent ones that we, you know, discovered was, um, you know, the dummy has a, the, the small female has a sensitivity to belt position. And so right. she wasn't, she wasn't designed to have a sensitivity to belt position. It doesn't represent human sem sensitivity to belt position, but she has one. And so we have figured out a way to, to compensate for that. And so sometimes with the tools that we have, we have to compensate for their shortcomings. And so, you know, um, I would love to see a dummy that could truly represent human thoracic injury. Um, I think that the dummies that we have, there there are new dummies. Um, the, the Thor dummy is out there and under development and um, and being used. Um, in the near term, we've, we have decided not to go that direction because we didn't find that it added more um, information relating to real world data. Um, but we hope that as we progress in, in understanding thoracic injury, how we can represent it in a reliable way that we can we can get dummies that um, can represent those injuries better. And another area is, you know, um, you know, we want to understand the the female extremity injuries better. And so we'd like to see a dummy that can can better represent um, extremity injuries and the differences between males and females. That's very interesting. The um, now that's interesting because we've seen, you know, I've. Some of the things we've been looking at are injuries to, to um, female legs in, in the front seat in crashes, mm -hmm. but um, also in the rear. One of the things I've always been really surprised by is just how important it is in in-cap testing, and I'm assuming yours as well, that the belt placement be proper uh, on the dummy um, mm -hmm. for many reasons. Um but also, and also kind of related to that in the, in the rear seat, um, issue, it aren't, there are a lot of chest injuries in the rear seats that, that I don't know if they're related to the lack of pretensioners and load limiters. Um, but it's, it's a, the, the rear seat seems to be a difficult space to design around. I don't know if, is that because there's so much variation in different car, different vehicle models? Or is it, but, you know, I know we know it's been ignored somewhat as the technologies progress in the front seat, but are there any other, are there any underlying issues in the rear seat that complicate these things, things like the belt placement and other issues? Yeah. And, and that's something that we've run into in trying to um, encourage, you know, um, advancement in safety technology in the rear seat. The rear seat is used for a lot of different things other than, you know, your your typical driving age occupant. You know, you have, um, you know, a lot of considerations that people are trying to make use of the rear seat for. They want them to be flexible for cargo. They need to be able to accommodate children. Um, there's, you know, there's issues or 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 strategies for the rear seat that you don't need to consider when somebody's um, going to be driving and you know paying attention to the road and is as of a certain age you know people of a certain driving age you know are are not going to be the size of children and so there are a lot of considerations in the rear seat that you don't have to design for in the front and so that's why 
one of the issues in the rear seat is belt geometry and where the anchorages are placed and how they fit the size occupants that sit in the rear seat. And so that's one of the things that we we want to encourage back there is is good belt geometry that can adapt to the occupants that are in that seating position. Um, and that's that is definitely a challenge in the rear seat. And I noticed in the in the rear seat ratings that you know it's not just a rating of function. It's almost there's almost another rating on the side that's you know kind of I think that's a rating of whether they have pretensioners and that type of equipment in place. But I saw some vehicles that do have that equipment in place, but they still perform either poorly or marginally in some of the testing, which means they don't quite have it figured out even with that technology in there. Right. And yeah, that's what I was talking about before about the implementation. So there are vehicles that have the technology that we we want to promote, the pretensioning and the force limiting, but the implementation is just not quite there. And that that is usually related to... um, submarining um usually the and that is often related to belt belt geometry or how the the belt movement is managed um and so those are the improvements along with the the technology the pretensioning the force submarine we want to see it well implemented and in a robust manner so that you know occupants of different sizes you know you don't you don't want to design a a system that can only protect one size occupant. We want to see robust designs that will um, will keep the belts on the pelvis of lots of different size occupants. And that means robust intentional design. Right. And then you said submarining. So that really yes. reminded me of, you know, you create these cars for putting humans in and you've built it all up and the belts are in the right place. And then someone comes along and says, oh, hey, here's a booster seat. Yeah. That they want to stick in there and change everything up that you've designed into the vehicle and then put a child into that system. Um, and I think, you know, we we see high rates of submarining, particularly in certain types of, of booster seats. Um, do you is there, you know, any any information that, you know, parents should even know about about this? You know, are there certain types of booster seats that might be better or worse? I mean, I think we all recommend that parents keep their children in the um the house child seats as long <laughs> as possible before moving to boosters but um I, other than that are there any things that consumers might you know want to know about booster seats that could help them in picking the right one before yeah. that uh, consumers me in general want to know what what exactly do you mean by submarining yeah yeah i i throw that term around a lot and okay. uh, i apologize and pretensioners and the other thing for yeah. I, that was i think i got but submarining uh help me help me yeah out. sure so what submarining is is you know like i said you want to you want your belt your seat belt to stay on your pelvis bones and um and what submarining is is when the the lap belt moves up and over the top of your pelvis bones and lands in your soft abdomen and so we call that submarining when the dummy moves under that lap belt or the lap belt slides up into your abdomen Oh, and this is just this is during the the crash test itself. Yeah, during the crash. Oh, yeah, that's that's right. I remember when it was only lap belts, and no one would wear them because they were just uncomfortable as it was. Yeah, lap belt only lap belts are are not good either. Mm-mm. Any chance we're gonna get the uh, like Formula One racing full harness? I I doubt that many people would be on board with that, but that would definitely improve things. 
it would probably help with fire far side collisions and other things as well. Yeah, it might it might decrease belt use, which would probably be an issue though. Right. Sorry, my my submarine question. I interrupted Michael's question about what parents should know about uh, booster seats and things like that. Sure. Yeah. So we actually um, we rate booster seats for belt fit. So one of the things about booster seats that we want to encourage and um, and booster manufacturers have responded in in creating good belt fit. And like I said, you good belt fit means keeping the belt in um, in a good place that's across low low across the pelvis and across the um, the clavicle bones. And so we have ratings on our website that can help. Um, parents choose or, or caregivers choose what type of booster might best work for their child. Um, and, you know, one of the important things about boosters is that they, um, is that they boost. So they raise, raise children up so that the belt fits. They're really meant to, um, put the child in a position to be the size of, of a larger occupant so that they get the shoulder belt in the right place and that the belt angle of the lap belt is in an optimal position to keep the belt on the pelvis during the crash rather than than a more horizontal you know angle where it might slip off is it important to match the model of booster seat with the particular car model that you're considering i think it's always always worth testing your your vehicle with a booster seat um, and and making sure that you know your child and that booster in your car are well suited and how would somebody know if they're if they're well suited well yeah, um, yeah. that's a you good go out and buy three dozen booster seats yeah. and each <laughs> of them in your car yeah so that's part of what part of what our ratings are is they um, they have check fit you know if there, there's ratings that are, um, you know, they're pretty likely to work in a lot of vehicles. And then there are boosters that, you know, you may need to check it in your car and make sure that they work with your child. And that's, again, making sure the belt is low across the, um, across the, the lap or across the pelvis and making sure that the belt is across the clavicle rather than up on your neck or hanging off your arm. Um, and, and those ratings can be found in some details about how, how that fit can be found on our website as well. You guys do fantastic work. I gotta say it's, it's wonderful that you're out there. I do have another question. Um, you do some crash avoidance testing, right? And there are no federal standards for crash avoidance testing. So you're running in advance of whatever the federal government might be doing. So um, brings up a lot of interesting questions. Uh, number one, do you find that it works well? And number two, is there any car company that's saying, well, we don't have to really build a stronger car anymore because we've got this crash avoidance testing and we're simply not going to be getting into into crashes. So why bother putting steel in front of the passenger compartment anyway? Yeah, um, so we do do crash avoidance testing. And um, I think that's one of the ways that, you know, we're able to, to complement what what the federal government is doing because we can move more quickly in some of these areas to implement um, evaluations. And, and yeah, we, we have absolutely seen that they've been beneficial and we've seen that, that automakers have responded. Um, so we do frontal crash prevention evaluations and, um, and we are, you know, we've seen excellent response to that we had a, um, you know, 
um, voluntary agreement um, with automakers to make um, automatic emergency braking standard by 2022. And, um, and really they've responded like 20, 99% of, of the vehicles on the road um, were committed to have automatic emergency braking by 2022. And, um, and we've seen significant improvements in field in the field in that, um, that that technology reduces crashes. Um, and so we, we want to continue to promote that. And actually we've, um, we've retired the original one and we are researching what the next phase is to, um, to improve things even more. And so we're, we're pushing, we think that's really beneficial technology and we're, we're pushing to keep that, um, to raise the bar on that. Yeah, and we've we've already seen lots of benefits in crash prevention from a, I guess we like to think of it as like phase one or level one automatic yeah. emergency braking in many respects. Um, you know, it, right now it's able to work at low speeds and prevent car to car collisions, but you know, pedestrian automatic emergency braking is coming out, and mm -hmm. we're hoping that it can work. You know, automatic emergency emergency braking can work at much higher speeds over highway speed and. You know that pedestrian braking can work better at night, and in other in, uh, scenarios where y'all have pointed out that it's it's some of them aren't doing so well. Yeah, um, that's exactly those are the areas. And coming out with its rules soon, so a lot's going on in this area. Yeah, and that's that's exactly where we're looking as well. We're looking. We we do do pedestrian AEB testing already at daytime and nighttime, um, and the um, the update that we're looking at is is looking at using higher speeds for frontal crash prevention evaluations. Have you seen any OEM doing a job where you're like, hey, that's much better than we imagined? Um, I think that there there is definitely a range of performance. And so, <laughs> you know, sometimes we are surprised on in both directions by performance. Okay, fair, very political answer. <laughs> I, can just, I, I know the radar on my system, its field of view is slightly narrower than it should be. Yes. That's yeah. And I that's know. why that's why we evaluate these systems because nobody else is, you know, and there's they're made by different manufacturers and they all have different standards and they have different equipment that they're using to make the um the judgments and so you know i think it's helpful for to consumers to to have some standardization of of what right. the technology is that they're getting yeah that's what i'm wondering will, will nitsa getting out it's finally getting out it's a b rule makings will that make your job a little easier because there's going to be at least some standardization to the systems yeah yeah and you know that's generally what we hope to see is that that things that we have spearheaded end up in, you know, regulation so right. that we don't have to keep doing them. We can move on to something else. Right. Yeah. I like the fact that you guys are testing this instead of the uh, member of my household decided to test the AEB system. Uh, <laughs> know how great it is. The guy at the body shop loved it. It didn't work so well. Huh? No, no. It was a uh, changing a lane and just, I mean, I wasn't in the car, but I was like, how did you miss that giant? That's a, you know, <laughs> eh. yeah. The radar missed it too, I guess. Yeah. I, I managed to back into my, um, my husband's car. I ah. found a, I found a fringe case of my system as well. <laughs> Was the backup camera lens dirty? <laughs> I think I just found a fringe case on the, ah. on the rear corner panel or something. <laughs> Got it. 
That's good to know. So Fred uh, briefly mentioned you guys were working on uh, autonomous vehicles. And he, you, so you guys just, you glanced over this thing because autonomous vehicles is our, is like our big, big issue these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, each week we have Fred read through uh, something we call the uh, consumer AV bill of rights, where it's a list of, Hey, these are the things that autonomous vehicles need and should have. Uh, it's great that you guys are starting to test this, but before we jump into Fred discussing uh, number nine of the consumer autonomous vehicle consumer bill of rights uh what was the one you were talking about there with the avs cresting a hill and and something yeah was it a was it a cruise did it hit a school bus again you know (laughs) that i i don't know my i actually do um passive safety generally which is the 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 crash actual the actual crash safety so the details of, of what that case was, I'm not sure, but um, but we are researching um, autonomous vehicle technology. And so, like Fred said, we put out some research on, on level two systems and how well they work, which is typically adaptive cruise control or um, lane changing. Um, and so we are trying, and we're actually going to be putting ratings out on those systems later this year. We are trying to make sure what we want to do is make sure that those systems are keeping the driver in the loop, um, yeah. that the driver is um, has shared responsibility in the system. And so, you know, I think there's some perception with autonomous vehicles right now that that the driver can disengage. And what right. our goal with this with this rating is to make sure that the system keeps the driver engaged. And, um, and that means that they're um, visually engaged. There's cameras looking at where their eyes are looking, that their hands are ready to respond. Um, and so that's, that's what our focus is for autonomous vehicles right now. Very neat. Shall we uh, go into the, the Tau of Fred and, and discuss autonomous vehicles? Oh yes, let's do. Okay. Welcome to the Tau of Fred. The Consumer AV Bill of Rights. This week, it's episode. It's item number nine. Oh, I, I love this one. This is my actually my favorite one. AVs shall include a foolproof capability to expedite safe egress on demand of its occupants. Example, a big red stop button. I like it. You've now entered the Dow of Fred. Thank you. Uh, Marcy, I don't know how familiar you are with what we're doing here, but we're trying to put together a consumer-oriented set of minimum requirements that need to be implemented by manufacturers in order to make the AVs acceptable to consumers. And so uh, we've, we've developed a list of these and I don't know if it's full self-driving, not just like fully self-driving, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's, it's a brave new world. And what we've discovered, uh, and I'm sure what you know, is that a lot of the discussion is completely reactive. A, Manufacturer will propose something. They'll say, we're going to put it on the highways. And a lot of people react to that and say, well, no, because of this and no, because of that. There is no set of standards uh, that industry has adopted or the government has adopted that says, this is what you really need to do. And so we're, we're trying to fill that void with this consumer AV, AV Consumer Bill of Rights. Um, so today we're talking about as Anthony just said, including a foolproof capability to expedite safe egress. So why is that needed? Well, number one, we don't ever want a consumer to be in a position of being held captive by AV logic when they want to get out of the car. There's a lot of reasons why somebody needs to get out of a car that 
go far beyond what we can imagine right now. Uh, emergency situation, somebody threatening the vehicle, bad weather, who knows what. There's probably a lot of reasons why a human judgment needs to be superior to the machine judgment about when and where to let the passengers out of the car. So we believe that before they're introduced into commerce, the AVs have got to provide a means for untrained occupants to obviously initiate expedited safe vehicle stop and occupant egress. So you can think of a big red button that you want to stop. Uh, you know, you can push that and the car will say, okay, I, I understand. It pulls over to the side of the road, lets you come out. Also, the car does not stop on the top of a bridge where there's no uh, no breakdown lane to let you out there and say, okay, you're on your own. So it's got to, you know, it's got to be able to find a way to a safe spot to let you out. Also, a big red stop button isn't going to do somebody who has vision problems a whole lot of good. So there's there's a lot of talk about use of AVs to expand mobility for people who are otherwise challenged in mobility. But they've got to accommodate the needs of these people as well as the needs of a normally sighted person or a person with normal motor control if they're going to expand the envelope of users to include, you know, this expansive group that has been so often talked about. So the AV, the emergency egress has got to address the physical or mental limitations of its passengers. Also, if, you know, if you've got a, if you're sending your three-year-old off to the violin lesson in an AV and you just plugged in your credit card and off they go, uh, you, you got to make sure that the car is compatible with the capabilities and judgment of a three-year-old to get out of the car if I they need to just, do that. You just invented a whole new horror genre. Cars that kidnap. I mean, 2020 is going to have a whole series on this. Yeah, well, um, thank you. I, I didn't know I was that creative, but I, I like that idea. Well, ultimately, you know, the AVs must never falsely imprison a person for any reason, if they want to get out of the car, if they need to get out of the car, if they need to stop the trip for any reason. So we think this is a, a, a modest and easily achievable goal before the AV enters service. Well, maybe not easily achievable. It could be difficult, but it needs to be done because that is something that every person right now who's riding in a conventional vehicle um, implicitly has access to. I don't feel well. I'm, you know, I'm going to throw up. Okay. Well, let's go to the side of the road before you do that, Charlie. And, you know, I'd prefer that you do that outside of the car rather than inside simple things or, and complex things. It's a, it, but it all relates to that same initiative that you've got to have the consumer. You've got to have the person inside the car in control of their presence within the car for whatever reason. Um, I've gotten a surprising amount of pushback from other people in the regulatory community about this, saying, well, you know, well, this is, it's not easy. We, we, you know, we can't really do this. That's fine. If it's not easy and you can't do it, then don't put the car on the road that's going to endanger the, the occupants. Wait, that's, they're saying that's not the easy part, whereas a fully autonomous vehicle, that's the easier part? Sure. People bring up the people, no. people say, well, you can't do that because you might be going over a bridge at 60 miles an hour and there's, you know, there's a truck passing you and 
uh, it's raining and there's no breakdown lane. And so you can't have somebody just stop the car and get out. Well, that's true. That makes it difficult, right? You, you need to, you need to put enough judgment and enough capability into the car so it can sense those extreme circumstances and yet still assure the safety of the people who are in the car. Mm. Difficult thing. But again, you know, we're coming at this from the perspective of the consumer. We're not coming at this from the perspective of the pragmatic engineer who's got to get something out on the road because the ROI calculation says, you know, it's going to be in the market by the end of the year. And I don't care what it takes to get there. Um, we think we're the only ones doing that right now. I wonder if, you know, if there's anything on your side at the IAHS that's talking about putting together some kind of minimum standards like this that, that every car must meet in order to be suitable for public use. Yeah, um, I am not aware of anything that we have put together for the future levels of vehicles. I think um, for us, we have our plate full trying to um, to address the systems that are on the road right now. So we have not put a lot of energy into trying to um, think through what it would look like to, to make sure that vehicles are um, addressing these issues for consumers. Um, but I think it's great that you guys are doing it. I think that's an important role that somebody, like you said, they're, these are not reactionary necessarily, um, that they're forward thinking from the perspective of the consumer. I think it, it's, it's really great that, that you're playing that role and advocating for the consumers in this way. Because like you said, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things to think about. And those are, um, from the perspective of a, consu of a consumer, you know, I, I had not thought through that myself. So I think it's, it's a great thing that you guys are doing that. Yeah, I imagine this feature will get your life very busy because in some of these AV vehicles, there's no longer a front seat. There's no longer a back seat. I mean, so I, I mean, it just would change your testing facilities and, and practices dramatically. Um, like the Zooks vehicle that I like to make fun of. Um, it, it's like a, I don't know, it's a pod with bench seats facing in towards the center. Um, yeah. And, and as a community, I think, you know, there has been a lot of research trying to address those sorts of scenarios, those, the differences in AV vehicles, the types of seating constraints, the types of um, safety systems that would need to be in place to adapt to an occupant that was reclined or facing the opposite direction or, um, you know, trying to understand how that changes um, restraint design. So there's definitely been some um, concerted effort in that area, um, but from a safety perspective, but um, but not from the perspective of what you guys are doing that I've seen. Yeah, I was. I, it's always interesting to hear things like campfire seating where yeah. <laughs> they're sitting on swivel chairs in a circle and you're going, what on earth could you do with an airbag and seatbelts to, to make that safe? I don't know if you could. You know, we still struggle to make yeah. those sideways facing seats on bus buses safe because they introduce a completely different type of 
crash force to the body and it's iffy as to whether you know the type of seat belts we have are really protecting folks on that are riding sideways on buses so it gets really complicated when a human can spin 360 degrees <laughs> inside of a car I, I figured it out. We get rid of airbags. We get rid of seatbelts. Instead, we use that same foam they use on, on runways to stop planes. And so you're in a crash and just boom, a whole bunch of marshmallow fluff comes down. Ooh, I, like I that love idea. it. Yeah, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, you're protected from impacts. You're absorbed and you got a nice snack. Yeah. Like, as long as it's marshmallow, like, you know, I'm good for it. I, I know exactly. Fred will come up with a vegan <laughs> variation for you. That'd be good. Um, and you know, that's. I don't see I, how I it can go wrong. I, it can't go wrong. I don't know why you'd say that. Well, you could, you could have it in flavors, too. You could have, you know, cherry one day and peppermint the next to make it very attractive. I think depending on the crash, you change the flavor. Sure, there you go. I was also thinking about the submarining when you were talking about it, and I, <laughs> I was thinking that it would be impossible to keep a teenager from submarining because they always kind of sit and recline and, you know, slouch as much as possible. Yeah. And man, those seatbelts are going to zip right up. Posture yeah. is really important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, you know, with the, with the autonomous, autonomous vehicle research for safety, that's one of the primary concerns is we rely a lot on occupant position in order to make sure that the safety restraints are properly used. But when positions change, you have to adapt and think outside the box for what kind of restraints could restrain an occupant in those scenarios. Now, do you do you do the uh, kinematic modeling on a computer as well as the testing to correlate the two, or are those running on separate tracks? Um, so we actually, we don't do that in-house, but um, we... We are pursuing that avenue for um, rear impact testing right now. So, you know, one of the things that we want to start to address in rear impact testing is we know that there is a difference between males and females. We know that, um, you know, different test severity could be influencing outcomes. And we know that different occupant positions could be influencing outcomes. But right now we, as IHS, only test one severity and we only have one rear impact um, dedicated dummy. And that's the 50th percentile male. So we've chosen rear impact as the avenue that we are going to try and pursue Um computational modeling and in evaluation testing with. And so that's a big area that we're researching right now is, is how to make that um, a possibility. So expanding the types of tests that we do without actually having to expand the number of physical tests that we're doing. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, you know, one of the areas that we have spent a lot of energy on is um, front seat collapse in a rear, in a rear collision. Um, uh, have you all seen any trends related to that or is that, you know, is it serendipitous? It could be just a response to manufacturing defects or systematic designs or who knows what, but I suppose that's probably an active research area as well. Yeah, we, we get a lot of questions about um, seat failure in rear impacts. So we have done some research on it. Um, I think what we found was, is that they're, um, you know, modern seats 
um, far exceed current federal regulations, um, but that there's still a range of performance. So we used a 50th percentile male and did did some testing and found that that for the front seat occupant occupant retention, um, you know, all the seats that we tested performed you know, reasonably well, um, but that we did see a large range of performance. So, you know, if you had a higher severity or a higher mass occupant, that um, spread could could increase significantly. And so, um, you know, we haven't we haven't pursued what the next step would be there, but we we think that there um, is a potential for for better consumer information. Um, to inform, you know, what the range of performance is in, in CPAC strength. And I know it gets complicated there because there's, you're also juggling the front seat occupants crashworthiness and some of the whiplash things that, that you've worked on along with the potential for the rear seat occupant to be impacted. So it's, it's a, it's a tough area to figure out how to improve seats in, in, in that respect. It is, yeah, and and some of the research that we looked at is is trying to understand the, um, the the trade offs between high severity rear impacts and low severity or whiplash rear impacts. Um, trying to understand if there are seats that can you know both protect an occupant in a high severity rear impact without increasing the likelihood of whiplash injury. And we found that, that there were seats in the, in the market that were already doing that, but not that, but not all seats were employing um, the best strategies to do that. So I think there is room for improvement there, but it is challenging because you have to make sure that you're balancing a number of things. The um, You don't want to increase likelihood of the more common whiplash injuries in order to address the very rare high severity, but it's important to make sure that seats are protecting occupants in high severities as well. Um, and, then, and then you add in the interactions with the rear seat occupants and that further complicates things. My grandchildren, my infant grandson's were in the backseat of a car being driven by their nanny when it was hit by a car going about 70 miles an hour. So I want to thank everybody personally who was involved in tests that contributed to their getting through that experience with no injuries and being just absolutely fine. So thank you very much. Thank all of your colleagues at IIHS for their contribution to that. And, you know, it's very personal to me. Yeah, I'm really um, glad to hear that they were okay. Yeah, they were just fine. Their driver, uh, the woman driving the car, was a little bit upset, but not injured. And so, you know, it had a happy ending. I, I love it when that happens. And I guess that's what we're all about here, happy endings for extreme circumstances. So thank you. Yeah, it's my, yeah. It's my pleasure to do this work. Thanks. So before we let you go, though, it, it, can I it fair to say that you're an expert on seatbelts? Um, sure. Okay. <laughs> so we ended last week's episode with um, these uh, myths about seatbelts seat belts that I think NHTSA put out. And one of them was a scenario where uh, people are afraid, oh, I don't want to use my seatbelt because I will trap me if I get caught underwater. And so I put forth the scenario, okay, I'm driving over the George Washington Bridge. I go off, hit the water. Michael said the only reason I survived because I had my seatbelt on. But, you know, you always see that movie horror thing. Is it trap you in place? 
And as the seatbelt expert, do you have one of those knives to cut off the nylon in your car? Um, I don't. I okay, th- <laughs> then I don't need it. If you don't have it, I don't need it. Okay, good. I am. I am not a worst case scenario sort of person, so I'm not. I'm not <laughs> always thinking about what the worst thing that could happen. I'm. I'm a bit of an optimist, so I do not have one of those. Okay, but have you ever heard one of those cases where the seatbelt won't release? It's um, red, I in movies. Yes, I I have not run into those in the real world. So I think your your chances that is correct. Your chances are much better if your seatbelt is on in in almost every scenario. Okay, so you heard it here, folks. Uh, Marcy Edwards, senior research engineer at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, says wear your seatbelt. Okay, wear Absolutely. your seatbelt. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was thank you, Marcy. a great conversation. Thank you, Marcy. You're welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Until next week, listeners, I know you're on autosafety.org, clicking that donate button and filling out the form, or you can just keep clicking the donate button, but then fill out the form and and hand over your credit card information. Hey, 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 didn't we forget something? Something about an armored vehicle? Okay, so... Yeah. Okay. So I'll give an update on this. We, we put it out there to people saying, um, if we got I don't know, five monthly donors, uh, in a certain period of time that Fred would reveal his, the story about how he was chased by a tank. He was not the protester in Tiananmen square. He was not in some Vietnam protest. He was not getting chased by the national guard at Woodstock. His Woodstock story is a totally different story. Um, we can, we can add that on now, or we can save it for two weeks from now. It's up to you, Fred. Oh, let's save it. Okay, great. So come back in two weeks and we will tell you that story because everyone met our donations goals and you'll hear the story about how a young Fred Perkins out possibly committing a felony, maybe not committing a felony, maybe just in a backyard walking along and all of a sudden a tank is chasing him down. (laughs) Thank God for the statute of limitations. (laughs) That's how we end every episode. What felonies has Fred committed as a youth? All right. Uh, Thanks again, Marcy. Uh, Until next week, everybody. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you, listeners. Thank you all. Bye, everybody. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.